I can't wait to play Walt Whitman as a carry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. Or like but Hamilton. It, it would it wouldn't be Walt Whitman though. It would be like Wendy <laughs> Whitman, the what? gender bent Walt Whitman who lives in like the seventies or something. <laughs> she has a butterfly. Oh, the leaves of grass is one of them. Oh, talking, talking of butterfly. Uh, Welcome to Every Game in the City, a podcast about eight game makers, curators, and researchers who are meeting up in Shanghai for a week to try and watch every game at the International Dota 2 Championships. I'm Yang Jing. I'm Stephanie Bullock. I'm Li Shanglun. I'm Philania Liu. I'm Peter Nelson. I'm Patrick Lemieux. I'm Alexandra Lee. And I'm Will Parton. And today, we're going to talk about some of the ways in which esports and art intersect in Shanghai at UN Art and the Hao Art Center. Valve calls Dota an arts, action real time strategy. But maybe Dota is also an art, A R T. So there's seven of us today because we always again on his solo mission. Oh, <laughs> can't get enough of it. He's our carry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we sent him back to the arena. Yeah. Seven for one Dota. He's, he's, playing, he's playing the middle lane. <laughs> but we have other companionships. We have so many Red Bulls on our table. Yeah. Because I don't even know which day is today. <laughs> it's it's been a long week. It's yeah. I don't know anymore. Yeah, I think we're we've, we're outside of space and time. Our bodies are exhausted. Uh, I know our mind. We're we're sneezing and coughing and and and. I hope Alex sneezes on this episode. Yeah, <laughs> sneeze is really good. So we're so tired because there's a basically information overload. Yeah, yeah. We have to absorb so many things all the time, and our bodies are on the move all the time too.、Mm-hmm. And so today we can take it a bit slow and talk about the beautiful things. But it's also something we are absorbing every day—the visual part of、yeah. game Dota. So maybe we can start to reminiscence about our trip in a weird place that was the oldest theater, like movie theater in Shanghai. Now it's called On Art, like U N Art.、Mm-hmm. And I, before I was coming here, some gallery owner was talking to me like, "So you're coming to Shanghai to watch something like sports, but not really sports?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah." <laughs> Do you want to come? He said. I heard about this esports thing, and there's an art space opposite to mine on the same street. They're buying weird chairs, like really high tech chairs, and、what? they're saying they can watch something called esports. Is that、gamer、what you're、chairs. doing? Gamer chairs. Oh, you know, someone told me gamer chairs are just like booster chairs you put in a car. Yeah, the same thing, really. Oh, so they gotta hold、chairs? the babies in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought they're like, like racing car chairs. That makes more sense. I like the idea.、Really、I think it's more accurate that they're baby chairs. <laughs> So this is the oldest theater in Shanghai that's been renovated into、uh, a place that does art and esports. Yeah. So the guy was asking me, "What's that for? So many money for chairs and watch something you can watch at home?" And I said, "Can you send me an invitation? I really want to go there." And it's just weird because I was holding another podcast party before this start. Yeah. And the owner or the manager of Honor came. 
and said, "Yeah, you should definitely come." And we are all invited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was so interesting this space because when I think of the art world and I think of the people in the art world, and when I think of esports and the people that we've been meeting、yeah. in esports. These are Venn diagrams that don't really overlap, except in Shanghai. Except apparently in Shanghai, where there's this space that's like 50% esports, 50% art, and I, I was really curious to see like. When they say that, do they mean that it's going to be art about esports or、yeah. esports as art? Yeah, you never know. Two, are these like almost like ships in the night, where it's like these things happen in the same space, but they're really, really different? Yeah, you you never know when you hear about these things in the context of art, like exactly how games will be rendered, because depending on the attitude of the curator of the museum, they might be more interested in the aesthetics that games produce. Or using the tools that games are made out of to make、mm. something else, or showing games in a different context, or museumifying or historicizing design products like video game consoles. You're like never sure no, you're what、sure. direction the given museum will take it. Yeah, and I think it's it's pretty fair to say that over the past few days. Um, esports equals money. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the equation. Yeah, like, like we keep、up. coming back to just the money of all of this spectacle、uh, that that we're surrounded in. And what I thought was really interesting, and 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 you can correct me if I'm wrong、mm-hmm. on on how this space is set up at at UN Art or UnArt. That's a great name.、Um, <laughs> The way it's it's working currently is that the esports side of it is actually going to fund the、yeah. media art half of it. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's our understanding of it. Although when we told this to people who worked in esports, they laughed and said that's bonkers because there's no money in esports. <laughs> Uh-huh. Thing, I, there's no money in art. There's no、either. money in art. There's no money in art. <laughs> well, there the is,、money? but it's all concentrated in、right. both contexts. So there is another player in this game. In the game of you and art is the government. <coughs> So、this is a government project. They need this old architecture to be there as a、mm-hmm. cultural heritage thing, but they couldn't really afford to keep renovating it. It wants to be someone taking over the responsibility and let the space, be the art or game, to be self-sufficient.、Mm-hmm. And so the idea is to esports feeding art. And the day we went in is really bizarre because on the ground floor is your typical. New media art space、mm-hmm. with a lot of screens and people dressed in arty ways. So, so like a white cube kind of space where it's just like what, just just a renovated floor or or concrete with white drywall projections and LCD screens with various. Nailed it. Were you there? <laughs> Were you there? <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, it looks like、um, it could have been a warehouse refit or simply just stripping out.、Um, The interior fixtures,、mm. so there were, you know, load-bearing pillars, and as you said, something like a polished concrete floor and white、mm. walls. Oh、good. yeah, it's like yeah. The, the ideologically perfect museum, the、yeah. Platonic ideal. Sorry, but that's like also what、uh, Mercedes-Benz Arena kind of become. Not to like go back to esports that we've been watching, but inside that arena, you might not know you're even in Shanghai. I mean, the audience is clearly Chinese,、yeah. but like all the food is. 
weird like symbols of food. All the like way that the game is presented is kind of anonymizing in these different ways and, and makes it kind of like a platonic Dota screen floating in a faceless, faceless void. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both the gallery space as well as Mercedes-Benz are kind of these no places, mm-hmm. right? That could be literally anywhere in the world. Um, and actually, I was just thinking about what you and Sean Moon were, were saying about the kind of concentration of wealth that takes place mm-hmm. in um, within the art world. I think Andrea Fraser has an article called L'Impossant C'est Moi that's all about how, like, it's not even the 1%, it's like the 0.1% mm. of artists that are financed by, like, banks and all the, the sort Government. of fin- the, and finance capital, that sort mm. of thing. And that that's what, and, and so there's there's money there, but then the, there's no real, like, trickle-down effect. Right. And what's interesting is that, that I think um, what we're kind of learning with, with Dota is that there's a sort of parallel relationship there where there's this, you know, intensification of wealth at the top, but then the the sort of trickle-down effect of esports mm. uh, isn't, it isn't as strong. The, the, capitalism, right? The, the hundred <laughs> players there are the point zero 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 one percent of like dota players or something yeah if anybody wants um a very very quick art world story that might explain sort of <laughs> how it works um i used to work uh as an art installer and i install also um art fairs in other countries and i was at an overseas art fair and you know we're there with tool belts on and work mm-hmm. boots and doing stuff very late mm-hmm. at night and these things usually have three openings. There's a VIP opening, which is publicized, a public opening. But before any of that, there are these tours that happen where I think it's representatives of what I assume to be millionaires or billionaires mm-hmm. who walk around while the whole thing's being set up. And that's where the business business is done. And then everything else, I think, is downstream mm-hmm. of that. Um, and I think, as I understand it, with most of the museums we'll be talking about today, um, there will be variations on what is... The art world in general, you know, there'll be somebody with a large amount of money who might have a tax incentive to have a museum, or it might be um, part of their public facing. It might be a philanthropic thing, mm. um, but usually somewhere to fund these things because they are not very profitable at all. Well, not profitable is um, somebody with an extremely large amount of capital to have the doors open and the walls be white. Mm-hmm. Somebody with bags of money that are much, much bigger than what's on our table, right? <laughs> Which we'll get to uh, next episode. They don't touch cash. And we were happy about how rich we are. Yeah. <laughs> we, we touch cash, they do not. Uh, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, I just have actually a, a quick question. I, mm. I want to hear more about the relationship of this esports slash art space to the Chinese government. Yeah, so that we should go up to second yeah level uh it's kind of weird did you also pass uh like a matrix rain plastic <laughs> curtain one? yes what, what? matrix yeah. rain plastic curtain whoa matrix you like pass rain. through the matrix yeah. into the esports zone it's like a ritual and then did you get wet <laughs> are you, are you did they stick that? something in the back of oh, your no. head <laughs> so they have this dividing was it yeah. or was it line yeah the other thing about watching art or viewing art is a bit like esports. It's people watching too, right? So on the first floor, I met, I bumped into people I've known for a year in Chinese art scene, mm. including non-Chinese people. Mm. But on the second floor, is people are more young, like they dress, they dress in t-shirts and jeans. And I talked to the manager of the second floor. He said, "Oh, I had nothing to do with art. I was a former employee of uh, Banana." Mm-hmm. 
and I've been this in this business for ten years. So I was a two go person in this business, and I was contacted by Pudong. Pudong is a district,、mm-hmm. Pudong government, because they want some pros to do it. They don't trust the art people enough.、Mm. Wow! Don't、yeah. trust the art people to run an esports. <laughs> But the esports folks. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, is is Banana? That's the company that wants to sell. Yeah. And it's just to to give a brief description、yeah. of it. It's like a it has multiple kind of、um, projects within it, like a kind of a yeah, ecology way, yeah. of of different closed worlds.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is maybe one of their small worlds in the large world. Right. And for the art people, I realize it's more of a spectacle to、mm-hmm. see because it has a huge screen and so many chairs. So that's、chairs. what was upstairs. It's just you walk upstairs, and it's kind of like the international. It's just like a giant projection screen and a bunch of nicer chairs, nice chairs, the booster、it's, gamer booster chairs, baby it was chairs. Kind of like a cinema. It was it was really weird, like、mm. um a completely bright cinema、mm. where you just have a bunch of rows of seats and a big screen, just the screen stuff. And it was very、mm-hmm. odd because it's like all of the other areas. Actually, upstairs there was some visual arts as well. Okay.、Um, so you would have all of these things like sculptures. Yeah, sculptures, projections,、um, different things like that. And then you have to. I remember、um, Stephanie and Peter. They got lost looking for Yang and I because we found the space because we asked some people. And it's just impossible to find this place. It's like cordoned off, as though it's like it was like a, a secret room. Yeah, yeah. Like no one come in here. But there、yeah. were some people inside. It was just extremely empty. The whole esports theater was like hidden, well, or just a side room with art. It's it just difficult、hidden. to find. Yeah. No, you need to know someone. It's、huh. not. It, it seems、yeah. as though you're not allowed to go in there. I didn't. Yeah, I really felt that it was a separate event. Like the when, thing, the way they describe it is that art is going on forever. I call them art is going on forever downstairs,、mm-hmm. but esports is like maybe once a week or twice a week. So the esports is really like a cinema; it's rotating,、mm-hmm. but they would attract young clouds. Artist, artist forever. Yeah, it's for now. Yeah, <laughs> It, it's such a funny flip because at, at least in、um, kind of like small towns in the states, you'll often have. Like a restaurant or something that has business every day, and they're upstairs. They'll turn into a little gallery、yeah. that will only do like Fridays or only first Friday of the month. This is almost like the opposite, where the art's always、yeah. running, but then every other Friday they'll do like an esports tournament or something. So if you want to watch an esports event, you have to watch some art first. Yeah, there's a study that showed that if you watch a horror film before going to an art gallery, you rate the art as better and more beautiful. And、so they should stack a cinema with horror movies first, then into the art, <laughs> then, then into the, the esports. Yeah. What, what <laughs> comes after esports in this aesthetic gradient? I feel like my response is after watching Dota, walking into an, the the art gallery, I just feel like this is all terrible. Really? Oh, what? Really? I、yeah. walked in and said, "Oh, it's just more projectors." Yeah,、uh. yeah, but it's true. So, so when we walked into the gallery, it, there was actually a lot of really interesting、uh, pieces、mm. being exhibited. But there was this one piece that was right at the center that was four screens set up in a three dimensional, like、oh, yeah. a three dimensional cube、uh-huh. that you could see from the outside, or if you wanted to, it was unclear if you could like sneak under and look at it from the inside.、Mm-hmm. That was a、um, a kind of. Cityscape, landscape、uh, of sky. It was Shanghai. Was it Shanghai? Yeah, was it was just, Shanghai. Okay,、uh, skyscrapers with some、uh, images that had been kind of skinned onto the skyscraper models. 
we were we actually we decided having been at the stadium for so long to pull out a recorder and start doing esports style commentary oh on, the, on the projection. Wait, so we can cut this in. Roll that footage. <laughs> Roll that audio. I like doing this esports commentary on art, by the way. Yeah, yeah. No, this is where it's your time to shine, and <laughs> not like, oh right, they picked the slark. Carry, carry. <laughs> um, I have a question. The, the fact that this is a, like, uh, three-dimensional projection of, like, four different uh, screens that are in the shape of the buildings that are being represented, is that just, like, cute, or does that seem meaningful to you? Let's walk around it. All right. <laughs> but, um, and so, so as, we're, as we're doing that, though, uh, you know, we started talking about, like, the difference between art and esports, and, and kind of Peter looks at me and goes in this kind of dejected voice, it's all projectors. <laughs> it's all it is, man. Especially it's the media art. It's all just projectors. Um, and that's in a so lot dark. of ways. So is eSport. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's what, that was my point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think in, in a lot of ways, uh, that, that's kind of the, the feeling that, that I, I'm, I'm starting to take away is it's all projectors with money. Yeah, well, I mean, logistically, it makes a certain amount of sense because what's better than just having screens or projectors, some kind of display, and then you can exchange the artwork so easily right. in them, right? Especially if it's video art. And so you'll see, like, um, folks in the video art world will be able to kind of, like, ship films around very easily, yeah. uh, whereas it gets harder and harder the more plastic yeah. your practice is. And so there's another sub-economy of, like, shipping art. Yeah, yeah. Economically, economically, and technologically, it's all kind of the same underlying base. Yeah, it seems to I be so. that's that's caught in in both of these, uh, you know, perhaps culturally different contexts. One of the things um, I definitely felt from going through my previous job in setting up art fairs and museum shows was that the primary artist is Samsung. Or, um, <laughs> That's so true. Like, yeah. Yeah. You remember when the, the artist is ever present <laughs> well, in the, our pockets. But it, you know, it's they are often the sponsors of the events, or there might be some relationships. Um, but you know, even from a Seagraph conference exhibition of like, um, you know, it's meant to be kind of innovative in a computational sense, through to a commercial art fair. If you were f from another planet, the things that are really dazzling is the innovation of you know, look at this. 8K flat screen that only just exists or something like that. And the artwork is kind of like the display animation or the screensaver. Yeah, right? Do you, like do you remember demo. when we were looking at that blue screen no input piece and someone came up to us because they were really scared that we thought that that was an artwork? Yeah. Oh, I was like, ah, <laughs> like, oh, this like Eve Klein monochrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I made a joke that I, that, you know, if you're listening, Samsung executives, Instead of saying no input, just say like Eve Klein Blue. That yeah. would be like a fun joke for the blue no input screen. <laughs> and then nice. shift the blue a little bit to the red to just get that ultramarine. YKB is copyrighted, I think, right? Really? Yeah, but can you copyright a color space Cad now? Cadbury has copyrighted the purple. No, they haven't. Really? You can say almost Eve Klein. They, they've almost copyrighted it. Yeah. I think they've copyrighted it oh, for, for confectionery. For chocolate or something. Yeah, uh, it's really. I remember Orange Mobile tried this with an orange square, they couldn't do it. Darn. As somebody who's replicated Eve Klein paintings or, or attempted to as projection screens, so right. this was for a body of work called uh, Art Games where I was producing 
monochromatic arcade games to be projected on paintings at the MoMA, uh, which as like a gorilla projection thing. Um, it's impossible to make Eve Klein blue on an LCD screen. Uh, so I have a second project that was about producing every shade of blue. There's about uh, 900,000 of shades of blue. If you look at the color space between like magenta and aqua on the types of LCD screens, at least how 16-bit color works. And so I made these videos just like going through all of them and they were like, you know, pretty decent video, like full length film length around nice. two hours to watch every blue shade. And, and yet Mario none blue? of them. Mario blue is also impossible to produce in paint. They have the, uh, the, the CMYK and RGB color spaces don't actually ever meet up in a satisfying way. And so there are all sorts of like tricks that artists do to try and replicate video game color. But it's always, if you compare them, nothing like it. So it, when Mario is printed, it's pure blue. Uh, and it looks nothing like the dull blues in the game. is really hard. So Cory Archangel's art forum cover is like not what Mario Brothers looks can we, like. Can we instruct our audience to Google additive and subtractive color space? Have fun with that. Do an interlude on just the science of like color. Yeah. <laughs> like why does magenta exist? So the lack of literacy in arts is very apparent on the second floor of you and art. Uh, they asked me, so how do they make money? Like the artists, like how do they sell these paintings? If they're not paintings, how do you sell these screens? Mm -hmm. But they're not selling the screen. And then when I was introducing us, like Alex, Andrew, and me, and he says, but how do you make money doing this? And then everyone cried. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all about money on yeah. upstairs, but more apparently. Right. People talk about it in their first sentence. Interesting. Yeah. Wait, the first sentence to you was Maybe the second, yeah. second sentence. Second. Yeah. So UN Art was only one of several art spaces we visited. Yeah, and there there's a lot of new art space appearing at the other side of the bunk. Mm -hmm. And Peter was in one of them because he's in this exhibition called Serious Gaming or Serious Games. Serious Game. Games at the Hawat Museum, yeah. Yeah, and this was just like a happy accident in some ways. We like wanted Peter to be on this podcast and it so happened that He's just like in an exhibition in Shanghai because that's what Peter does. That's <laughs> happens to also use the source engine. Well, we'll get there, yeah. <laughs> so because this term is used in so many different ways, can you explain what they meant by serious games? Right, that's a good, good question. question. Um, and I don't know the research behind um, this particular exhibition, but um, for me it was sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion that time and his history hasn't existed for a long time and we are in this perpetual recycled present and so i saw an exhibition um in new york uh in 2011 that had haroon faroqi's work that is also called serious games it's one of my favorite artworks um one of the first game artworks that i really really enjoyed and mm. his work serious games was in this exhibition so for me i felt that my past and future self had sort of collided and i was very happy but it um, the you know I've got a catalogue in my library at home called Serious Games that has that work in it. That's another exhibition of the same name, I mm. think. Um, but the word, as far as I know, kind of has two meanings. That when Hiroki um, was talking about Serious Games, he was looking specifically at the way that the U.S. military uses computer game simulations both to train soldiers before they go to Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as to kind of decompress soldiers, particularly those who have PTSD, after getting back. And the main takeaway is that they use more expensive render engines for training and cheaper ones to treat the soldiers with PTSD. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot mm -hmm. more in this work, but it's a lovely 
a quite amazing documentary on the subject. And the second meaning of serious games, as Thelania is more um, acquainted with, is um, games that have a non-game purpose, mm. either some um, use of political rhetorics or propaganda or, or education. Or commercial. Yeah, some uh, communicating a message outside the play f- the play for play itself. Mm. So there's these two meanings that you can see they're quite related. But um, in the art world, I think maybe it's a little more politicized because of its association with Haroon Faroqi, whereas I feel in the game industry, it's kind of, it can be anything from an educational game to something with a more um, ideological function. Um, Because I was there um, and I read very um, carefully about the introduction of that serious game um, Mm -hmm. exhibition. So basically I... I think they 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 are sort of referring to the second kind of um, game that Peter is talking about. But what strike to me, what what is most striking to me is the sentence that I actually quote in my WeChat wall is nothing is more serious than the game, and mm. and this was said by a name that I may pronounce wrongly, Henry Lefebvre. Henri Lefebvre. Oh no. Nineteen sixty-five. Sorry. No, no, that's Lafayette. Okay. Lafayette. is much more harder to say. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like the word, like right. the actual letters in the word and how you pronounce it have no like relation. Starting to say Henry Lefevre. That would be. I think or, if or we Henry Lefevre be. has a V in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just yeah. In any case. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're actually saying that. Um, the exhibition doesn't intend to make the distinction between serious and entertainment. On the contrary, the exhibition seeks to break the stereotypes surrounding video games. Trying to investigate video games with the context of the current political dimensions where lines are blurred between machines and human beings. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those interesting moments. Can you talk about, like, when, is, is serious games a word that's used or a term that's used in China as yes. well? Yes. And it's a term that I'm heavily against. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, I'm actually also against functional game. Right. So yeah. I've never heard functional game before. It's, it's one of those um, concepts that, that, that was um, brought up by one of the high-rank government officials. Mm. And then Tencent was authorized to do things mm. uh, oh. on it. So basically, that was all the sort of like... Um, annual report on functional games and like all this functional game events. Hmm. I was heavily against it as as it's very uncritical. It, it basically implies all sorts of other games to be either unserious or unfunctional. Yeah. Which and is like functional, is that like math, like teaching math or teaching code? Um, well, in, in Chinese, it's just a direct translation. Functional game refers to 功能游戏, and serious game refers to 严肃游戏. And is 功能游戏, like, a, is that like gamification? Like no. applying game metrics to... Mm. Um, it could be. It's, it's not necessarily gamification. Mm-hmm. Gamification was never mentioned mm-hmm. in, in, in those sort of, um, like, either serious or slash functional slash educational games. I see, I they, see. They just want to use this one new term to imply they're doing something different. And that they're fun. There is a PR oh, wall. Just function. I'm only interested in dysfunctional <laughs> uh, There is a PR wall behind it. Like, Tencent is always fighting with other IT companies to monopolize the game world but also other companies some companies are against 
gaming.、Mm-hmm. Like this is a rumor, but I believe it's like ninety percent true. Like Alibaba is is very very against game industry. While Alibaba also is the company right now doing the best gamification practices. That's、right? true. So it's really this. So the gossip I heard is Jack Ma, his son has brain cancer, and he、mm-hmm. believes it's caused by too much gaming. Wow! Whoa! Wow! Yeah, it's pretty heavy. And when I was doing my own exhibition, Tencent was about to sponsor it, but one condition is they have to squeeze in some of their functional games. I think it's something about Chinese traditional art. So it's almost gamification. You play、mm. for two minutes, but there's a lot of texts and images to tell you what, in specific, this Chinese traditional art form is about, and you learn it. Okay, so the primary it's pedagogy. It's teaching you about this history. I think so. Yeah. But also propaganda because it's and it goes on、um, more than art exhibitions, but also media outlet. Like they have books or magazines edited to teach average consumers, not game consumers, but average consumers in China, what is game, what is functional game.、Yeah. Or there is also a book called How to Supervise Your Children to Play Games:、uh, Friendly Tips for Parent for Concerned Parents in、mm. China. Yeah. For the listeners who.、Um When I look this up, I I remember reading an excellent、um, study by a bunch of psychologists that I I always remember when it comes to these discussions, and they were trying to look at、uh, cognitive effects of、um, playing computer games. There's kind of a meta analysis of a bunch of studies looking at this, and、um, there's a, a psychological、um, a category that people use as a con- convenient. Um, metric called emotional regulation or ER, and it's one of the common benefits that they identified a, a, from playing computer games. That by relentlessly having to deal with losing or with difficult challenges, that they found that emotional regulation was one clear benefit from playing games. But one of the funniest findings they had is they said it didn't really matter what type of game you're playing. So whether you're playing a game designed for Specific educational purposes, or whether you're playing Dota or something, they said that this this was the most easily identifiable, statistically relevant、um, effect. So it's the same.、Um, but it, I find it deeply amusing that they said really it wasn't the type of game that was the variable.、Um, you said that it helps benefit emotional regulation. Yes.、Right? Yeah.、But、then I I think that a lot of people, like the average person, thinks of gamers. And they think of an angry fourteen-year-old boy <laughs> screaming into their mic, just raging. Well, there was.、Um, they said that there's a the drop-off. So、oh, too you, much games will turn yeah, you like it was.、Wild. It was kind of the common sense conclusion that too much games will these effects will reverse themselves. Right.、Um, like I guess too much anything. So what you're saying is there's a chance that Dota is functional. Yeah. According to this study, they would say it's、um, uh, a very strong conclusion. Yeah. And and so like all this functional games, serious games, and, and games for change as well. Yeah.、Um, it sounds like there's a lot of the same rhetoric of we're going to metricize something about them in order to、um, evaluate the usefulness of a game, and that instrumentalizes them. That's exactly it. It's a utility, or or like、uh, trying to figure out how best to instrumentalize this waste of time or leisure time、um, for for other things, whether that be. Uh, education or profit or esports or art. Yeah, totally.、Um, I think it was Paolo Pettuccini had a great talk, like making games in a fucked up world.、Mm-hmm. Um, and he says it is a symptom of late capitalism that we attempt to reify the immaterial sphere, 
of language, of culture. Mm. All these things that we've been exploring this week, right, that make the, the interstitial community space, money, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can't measure it, then you can't optimize it and you can't sell it. So that's why all of these attempts towards serious functional games for change are about metrics. So, Valania, just as a point of clarification, there's functional games and serious games and gamification. And within Chinese terminology, are, these are totally different things. So functional games is not serious games, is not gamification? Sure, sure. They, they are different things. And in the case of gamification, is that something that's associated kind of like with, with the English use, where it's like often corporations that are just mm-hmm. trying to, or like business strategies to... Be more productive to, be by more productive metricizing their work. Quantify what, what, their time. Yeah, whether that's at work or, or like on an L- app. Ludic quantification. Right. It's, um, well, in the beginning, when, when gamification, the, the whole idea of gamification um, was introduced to China around 2013 and 2012, when um, Jim McGonigal's um, Reality is Broken was translated into mm-hmm. Chinese. And back then, there were a lot of innovative, um, like, try, trying of whether to use that to, to sort of ludic your daily life and work <laughs> and things like that. But um, then, um, I mean, currently, the best co- company that's doing gamification practices are Tessent and Ali. Mm-hmm. As in most successful at it? as the most successful and most popular use. Mm. So it's already monopolized by the mm. large corporations. And of course, it's, it's, it's one of those moments that we should stay vigilant and critical mm-hmm. of, its, mm-hmm. of its widely use. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm still saying I'm a gamification designer for a very good reason, because it, it is the best concept where you can sort of embrace ga- what games can do for the society. Mm-hmm. It's it's broader than serious game mm-hmm. or functional game where people would still um, sort of limit you to the genre of gamer or gaming, mm-hmm. while gamification allows you to embrace a broader mm-hmm. audience who's most alien to game but mm-hmm. but might be affected by it. It sounds like the conversation is pretty similar to the types of things that were going on within right. Anglophone, North American, European contexts. True. And one more thing to add, add on is... Um, I, I did say that I'm against functional game, but I'm not against um, to make games functional. Like mm. I, I once did this experiment of using Honor of Kings mm-hmm. to 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 see whether there are any possibility of making it into a made it educational. Huh. Uh, the context is um, in 2017, there has been this large public de- debate on the negative effect of Honor of Kings on teenagers. And, and they are saying they're, ru- they're ruining a young generation's historical uh, understanding of certain what? characters that was employed as heroes in the Honor of Kings. What? Wait, okay, okay. So Honor of Kings is a Chinese mobile game made by Tencent that is similar to League of Legends, but mobile only. But it is completely skinned with... Chinese literary characters and archetypes characters. And, Lucia, his, and historical characters. What, what are some examples of the most, uh, most popular ones or controversial okay. ones? Yeah, because <laughs> Dota, for example, has uh, Sun Wukong. Right, yeah, and right. they're very careful to um, include literary references from a specific translation of yep. Journey to the West. Uh, I think it's like the Arthur yep. Chu translation uh, from the 70s. 
where uh, the actual cosmetics reference the English translation of Journey to the West and like Monkey King has these two peacock feathers and like <laughs> he's wearing like the specific color boots and like his Nimbus works a specific way. So there's something about that in Dota. Somebody did their homework. Somebody right. did their homework at Valve, but I'm really curious why in the case of Honor of Kings, it's thought of as being ruining the literary uh, kind of uh, uh, background of the characters. So um, there are two sides of that. First um, side is is how to represent history in a gameful way. And what Tessin did was not ideal. They they didn't do their homework right. Mm. Or that that they did, Mm. but, but the person who were doing it had very... Um, had a very uncritical mind towards history. So um, they are creating his um, figures based on historical um, rumors or, or on a very playful attitude towards um, like changing them without referencing properly. Mm. So basically the most controversial one, that, that's, actually, that's actually the one being criticized by People's Daily. Yeah. <laughs> using a very large article. Wow. Um, and, and so that one is one of the, the male assassin mm. that, that existed, I, I think, in Chunqiu period. It, it huh. was in the warring period of, of China. That was almost like 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And he's a very fam- famous assassin. Um, he's called Jin Ke. And, and he's noted for his braveness hmm. and, and, and he's a historical figure not a literary he's figure real. Exactly. he's a real person he, he yeah. was real he was real <laughs> and and the thing is they, they made him into this really Japanese style a ah. female oh, assassin wow. that, that's called Aku and it doesn't look like <laughs> it's from 3000 years ago Chinese assassin looks like he she might be one of those cartoon figures that came from Japan. But he also bears the historical, uh, like he, he bears the name of, of right. Jinko. And then in his, uh, in her, his, her introduction, <laughs> it's so difficult. Um, the blur, yeah. In, in, in the like, introduction, the, the, there would be like a piece of history that's really pointed at Jinko. And so she looks like a character from anime rather than right. from the warring states period exactly uh, i'm curious how do you know if sh- she goes by Aku? she's the historical figure that's jinko she's not the the fictional no, character be- because the introduction i, I just ah, mentioned okay ah. this is like uh, female thor this is this is yeah like, it's like thor exists as a female Norse ghostbusters God. it's a gen- but specifically like that marvel has taken an actual norse mythology Cosmology, but Thor is mythological. Right, well, sorry. Well, well Jinko is historical. This That's is even the worse. problem. And <laughs> also, there are other problems. Like one of the most loved, most favored uh, Chinese poet, Li Bai. Um, mm, yeah. some, some people are not very, um, not very satisfied with his skills or the Wait, way. Wait, Li that- Bai is in honor of King. <laughs> Hang on, <laughs> the poet, the Chinese poet Li Bai, historical figure. Right. Right, and, and of course, of course well, I, I mean, the baseline here is mobile game is ahistorical from the very start, and, mm. and, and so we shouldn't really view them as, as historical, very good historical representations like civilizations mm. or, or like anything produced by paradox. Yeah. Gandhi but, in civilization, or like maybe. Oh, is this a Chinese series? Oh, Sorry. Sorry, my, my watch no is talking. Um, this is fascinating. I can't wait to play Walt Whitman as a Carrie. Yeah, exactly, yeah. it's that kind of thing. Or like but Hamilton. It, it, would, it wouldn't be Walt Whitman, though. It would be like Wendy <laughs> Whitman, the Wh- gender-bent Walt Whitman who lives in like the 70s or something. This always... <laughs> 
Puzzle fluid. Get, get some. <laughs> yeah. She has a butterfly. <laughs> and uh, leaves of grass is one of her. Talking, talking of butterfly, Zhuangzi, uh, um, where like what, one of the really Asian Chinese thinkers who who, who had that famous philosophy of, of does butterfly turn into um, yeah. dreams mm-hmm. or dream the dream uh, butterfly one is also in the game. Uh, with, really? With, so yes. Butterfly yes, powers. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and so, so basically, that that's the idea of honor of kings. Yeah. They they just put um, the historical figure and together with mythological figures t- together and with a popular understanding of their skills. It's actually um, entertained <laughs> to, to play that. But, just... but on the other hand, um, the, there is a very wrong side of them where they, they are not saying it's, it's a historical. And the problem is um, The Honor of Kings is the most popular game in China. It enjoys a player base of over... Um, 0.3 billion mm. players. Wow. It covers a very wide variety of, of uh, untraditional players. And, and of course, um, teenagers play them. Um, so basically, people were criticized of Honor of Kings of ruining not, not only historical understanding, but also the future education. And I was thinking, well, even that game could be educational. So mm. I did this experiment workshop where I recruit... Um, uh, 20 uh, like really top rank Honor of Kings players and they were um, around 19 years old hmm. who were really young and, and I did all sorts of um, psych- psychological um, interesting ex- experiments on them but the end idea is to try to provide them with um, a tool to, to allow them to think about Honor of Kings not as only a game, but as a teamwork tool. Mm-hmm. So in the end, their performance is relatively good. It, it's very unexpected because uh, they were not the traditional sense of good students. They were those ones. In, in the beginning of that work- workshop, you, you can see people not listening at all. They're playing with their phones. They're playing Honor of Kings while you were like saying important things to them. <laughs> but by the end of, uh, of the second day of the workshop, they were I, I had this really, really um, bizarre and detailed and a boring task <laughs> where I ask them to do this really not interesting test. Uh, but, but that would be relevant to teamwork cooperation. And mm. so they, they were very attentive to that. So, Falani, you said that um, you mentioned Tencent and Alibaba as the most successful um, companies in this uh, gamification space. And I was really interested in what do you mean by successful? They're selling yeah. the most games or that their games have a measurable output in terms of what they're saying mm-hmm. the gamification is achieving? Well, I, I want to call those games uh, their products. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's the idea of gamification. You're yeah. not making games, actually. You're right. making services or products. It's um, three criteria. One is the popularity of, of like how many people you covered and because in terms of Alibaba we would have um, you all have Jifubao right Alipay and inside Alipay there's this Ali Forest um, gamified Mm -hmm. um, mechanism where every time you do something using Alibaba you are actually helping to plant a tree in the desert area and in Ali Forest in Ali Forest. A digital desert. (laughs) No a real desert. What? A real desert And, and so that is the second criteria to see like the actual impact of that. Mm-hmm. So well, Alibaba's well, landscape painting. Right. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. You can actually you can and it's there, terrible. there's actually <laughs> this 
camera inside that app where, where you can take a look at, at that desert, which has been gradually covered up by, by this, these plants. And, and the, the third criteria will be like how good it, it, it is designed. I mean, Weixin Dushu, Weixin Reading, and, and Weixin Yundong, Weixin Sport. Are very well designed. Weixin is WeChat. WeChat, right? Mm -hmm. so, sorry. <laughs> um, I mean that that is very well designed, and you see all sorts of untraditional player, uh, mm. players using it, and people are competing for the leaderboard to to okay. do more exercise. So in this right. terms, I say they are the most successful. Right. Okay. I'm not sure how much they they earned out of this because it's, it's mostly more like the positive social impact rather than mm. the money. I'm currently starting to work on a project about Chinese fantasy world in games or mm -hmm. other new media. And I think for a long time, maybe 20 years, more than that, already now in the greater China area, Taiwan and China, mainland China, not including Hong Kong. Hong Kong doesn't make these games. There is like a recycling of Chinese mythology mm -hmm. and reinventing them. And you can see a lot of post... You can see a lot of postmodern thing going there, like people from different chronological order just appear at the same time and people who are maybe I'm your father but in this game you are my mother something yeah. like that and there's a Taiwanese game also about uh, the three kingdom period it's called Fan San Guozhi it's like in English it would be reversed three kingdom mm -hmm. so they made the main characters completely opposite in some perspective against their original type like one of the um Zhang Fei, one of the most violent and barbaric men, is a girl, uh -huh. but it's on purpose. Yeah, and it has a lot of players. So, from educational whatever point of view, you can see that this is an attention economy time. Like whatever can cause the kid to be interested in the history at all. Yeah, it's kind of. It sounds like there's a remixing of the kind of meanings that are uh, kind of like broadly consumed culturally without necessarily like recourse to citation or the original text, but that's because those meanings uh, kind of like are in culture generally. I think this happens in uh, North America, at least around a lot of um, biblical iconography, mm. um, where it has very little to do with the original text, but is pervasive in culture because of like Christianity in the States or something mm. like that. Um, so it's interesting that... Uh, um, I think it's really interesting that there's a pushback on that in terms of accuracy to some notion of authentic or original texts. Something that just springs to mind is the um, the Brad Pitt Troy movie where they replaced yeah. his lover with his cousin. Yes. I remember that. Yes. That um, and I can't remember an outcry there. It was just a kind of um, straight washing of of the history. Yep. Just as one counter example. Um, the one which I always think of is Hattori Hanzo. Yeah, he's mm. been he's been changed to be so many different people in so many different mm. um, media to the point where I didn't even believe that he was a real person, but <laughs> apparently he was. Um, and yeah, it's just just really strange because that's so commonly accepted with a real person. Mm to have ridiculous stories as well as Nobunaga as well. This is something that dawned on Stephanie and I pretty recently. We like booted up the original Dragon Ball and we're watching it and it's like, huh, the the like the theme song looks like Yongshuo and like mm -hmm. oh when Goku registers for this tournament, they nobody can pronounce his name because he's using Chinese characters. 
oh, Go- Goku is Sun Wukong. Like, the, the Monkey King, like, this is a Monkey King Wait, story, but true? it's, like, remixed, yeah. yeah. So we the, grew up with Dragon Ball having yeah, no idea That's that this was uh-huh. literally uh-huh. Sun Just a Sun Wukong story, because, uh-huh. like, uh, uh, um, Oolong, who's a pig that transforms shit, is clearly Baje from, from uh-huh. Monkey King. Uh-huh. Bul- Bulma is, of course, the, the, the wise sage who's traveling with them, and yeah. so, like, these meanings are pervasive, like in um, with folks who grew up with this literary tradition. Yep. But for us, it was just like we thought it was original. Like we thought Akira Toriyama is just doing like a fully original fantasy story, not thinking, at least as kids, not knowing that right. this connects back to a, a kind of like cultural bedrock of a literary tradition. How many kids know that Lion King is Hamlet? Like oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Better question: How many kids know that Simba is Kimba? Right, the white, the white lion. The white lion, yeah. Really? Well, yes. well, like on the other hand, Sun Wukong's case is fine because the core of Sun Wukong is to change, to transform. So, so it's okay for him to have like variations. Yeah. Oh wow. His yeah. identity equals good like narrative, right? Transmediality. This is, this is why in Dota, Sun Wukong has a button that is just a shapeshift button that turns him right. into a contextual object that blends into the map. Right. The landscape, one might say. Uh, clearly, there's like transculturation going on here, and it's of course interesting to know what should be done that way, not this way. But maybe it's also interesting to explore a little how it is now. Next, we'll talk about the How Art Center and Peter's historical Counter-Strike map autosave readout. What did you miss? You missed the historical assassin who was a man, but then turned to a woman. Yep. And monkey kings traveling around the world and doing all different kinds of things. From Goku to Dota. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we're now going back from history to where the present and future meets, because that's where Peter's also on the exhibition is in the very futuristic West Bank of Shanghai, where a series of new galleries and museums emerged. So, Pierre, for those of us who didn't make it, regretfully, to your exhibition, could you briefly walk us through what it is? Yeah, so um, the artwork that, um, that I put in the exhibition was co-authored by um, myself, uh, Alexi Mai, and Andrew Look, and we used uh, Valve's Counter-Strike Global Offensive as a representational medium to recreate a historical site, um, in this case, uh, World War II relic from Hong Kong. Um, so in the exhibition, there's uh, two computers set up with Counter-Strike on them, um, loaded with our what is essentially a mod. Mm. So it runs through the Steam Workshop. People can sit down, play the game. Uh, there are magazines to read that we wrote um, and a bunch of other information. But, uh, yeah, it's a computer game mod but presented as an artwork rather than a mod. And it's in an exhibition that more generally is looking mm. at uh, the, the topic headline of serious games and partly influenced by a very famous work by Haroon Faroqi yeah. of the same title, um, which is, I guess, um, one of the kind of headline um, pieces in that show. And what is it called? Which, Your work. Oh, did I not say the title? <laughs> <laughs> the title of the work is Autosave Readout. And that comes from um, 
you know, autosave, a Mm. bit of a joke on um, site preservation and digital preservation, which is kind of the field that we're working in a bit. And readout is, it's a military term that the site that we're representing is called the Shingmun readout. And readout is like, like a sort of a command center in a bunker. But also it's just a, it's a nice, slightly archaic English word that um, the word doubt kind of then feeds into some of the historical um, contradictions that we found. So these are the two words that we made, the classic double-barreled title, autosave readout. I learned another word today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Double-barreled. Doubt. Oh, readout. How did you get there? Oh, I took the, 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 the MTR. <laughs> Is that what you mean? Or how did the yeah, artwork... Yeah, exactly. Do you mean how did the artwork end up in the museum or how did I physically get to the museum? Both. Yeah. Okay, so the... Call museum, yeah. Oh, okay. Audiences, members, um, I'm famously bad at recognising sarcasm. So when somebody makes uh-huh. a joke like that, I do not get it and I will tell you how I got there. How did you get invited to exhibit something in a museum called How Museum during okay. an exhibition called Serious yep. Game? <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. Um, well, I mean, in a simple sense, uh, maybe two months ago, I was contacted by the curator of the exhibition and they knew about the project. Uh, this work has been exhibited twice already in exhibitions to do with... Um, uh, computer games and art so I think they probably heard about it through I guess one of those exhibitions and uh, yeah you know then we go through the process of finding out all the other works in the show um, once we found out you know that the museum is really good and the other works have some of my like all-time favorite um, media artworks in it we said yes very quickly and um, yeah then we we had to plan this whole exhibition remotely so because we're kind of geeky I recreated the whole museum in um, a 3D modeling program and made about five different versions of the installation. And so we, you know, we planned this entire exhibition um, in rendered screenshots. And then um, I turned up and my 3D model was an exhibition. It was cool. Wait, so it was recursive? Did that work actually appear in the exhibition? Or was that just how, that's the amount of detail you go into plan? More the amount of detail. Okay, so the planning itself was not presented as an art. No, 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 no. It was just me making renders of, um, you know, I had a a floor plan Mm. and um, I just had to make a scale model, drop in a human figure, and then um, myself, Andrew, and Alexi, we would have some very long Skype sessions talking about what sort of things we thought would work. And I'd change the model, render out a shot, send it to both of them, We'd send each other screenshots of furniture and stuff like that. Um, what are you looking for when you're designing for exhibition spaces? Uh, for us, um, and this, I think this is an important question because it gets to the problem of exhibiting game work. Mm, that really, absolutely. the first time we exhibited this, we were very conscious that when you put a game into a, an exhibition, you're really appropriating game culture to a world where it doesn't belong. And um, this, that world really belongs to the people who play games. And the museum world is it's different, arguably more elitist. It's got completely different conventions. So yeah. how you construct the space, I think, really matters. And so we've done a few things. We made a kind of um, a whole electrically rigged Kotaku rooms once where all the lighting was rigged to the sound card of the computer so that as you played, the whole room kind of mm. uh, hummed along with the game. Um, and this time we were going for, you know, the contemporary dystopia of the WeWork type of um, 
collaborative workspace and going for that sort of cold, slightly cold alienation, something that's a little bit comforting but feels a little bit wrong. So we've got kind of high desk cubicles with a dividing screen. So there are two players of our game and in the central space there's, you can sit and read a magazine mm-hmm. and the magazines are made to look like game magazines but it's actually a complete fabrication that I ghost wrote. So it's a special issue about our work. And then there's a coffee table and a bunch of couches and a kind of shag carpet, not unlike the one that <laughs> is at our feet right now. Yeah, and then um, two monitors that... Um, throw each gamer's view up onto the wall and then a series of posters. There's this kind of emerging discipline that's necessary for people who make games, design games, and show them in these spaces that, as you point out, are not really well-suited or well-versed in game vocabulary. They're not games literate. Um, And it draws from exhibition design and it draws from game design and psychology. And more and more people are having to figure out how to present these things in the physical space. We had a nice little bit of um, uh, a bit of a juggle in terms of how to manage the game in the space because our game is actually mm-hmm. a mod um, of Counter Strike using the Valve Source engine. So because of you know the way that mods are structured, you can't get ever get your mod out of um, the Valve mm-hmm. ecosystem. So our game has to run in Steam, mm-hmm. and that also means that anyone who comes in who knows CS knows every trick of how to get out of our mod and just play Dust or whatever. So we have to do all sorts of stuff to kind of lock it down a bit. But, you know, if gamers break out of it, as I said before, it's their world probably even more so than ours. So the curators go nuts and they really every day have to check, Mm. whereas we sort of think, well, it's a game. And if they're players and they sit down and they, they don't want to play our game, they want to play Dust... And they figure out a way to do it. Well, I feel sheepish saying this, but I was literally in the sh- in the secret shop when you were giving your talk mm-hmm. at the exhibit space. Um, so, so from what you're describing, the exhibit is this kind of we work testament to speculative real estate and gig mm-hmm. economy capitalism. But what's the game itself? that okay. is actually being played. So the game is, um, to put it simply, it's a poetic response to the question, how realistic is a computer game? I guess mm-hmm. in a very broad sense. And specifically, we sort of set up a question and answer scenario. We have a site, which is a, a historical site in Hong Kong that Andrew was very familiar with, um, which was uh, a bunch of tunnels and bunkers mm-hmm. and pillboxes that were built by the British during the 1930s. Um, in anticipation of some sort of conflict um, in northern Hong Kong. And we had a medium which we chose to use, which was Counter-Strike Global Offensive. Uh, Andrew, actually, he had the idea straight up. When I f- He's uh, probably one of my best friends in Hong Kong. And when we first met, he told me about this idea, that he wanted to recreate this space in Counter-Strike. I'm like, okay. And we literally just met and we'd been sort of at the bar all night, and I said, well, you know, I might be able to help with that because I once made a recreation of Sydney Harbour in StarCraft. And I kind of... <laughs> and it was, a, it was a very similar project that I was commissioned to make a response to an old military site in Sydney Harbour. And what most of these sites have in common, um, the one in Sydney and the one in Hong Kong, is that they were usually architecturally redundant by the time they were built. And this... Um, the Theorist Paul Virilio writes about this a lot. In the case of Sydney Harbour, there were fortifications built after the Crimean War, and basically the British sold the Australian government uh, weapons that were no longer really very good technology, cannons that never would have done much. 
And so, of course, this site was never really used. And in the case of the tunnels in Hong Kong, it was more like, I don't know if anybody knows the Maginot Line in Europe, these post-World War I fortifications that by the time tanks and air forces are invented, they're really quite redundant. And so the site in Hong Kong um, was the first point of contact between the British and the Japanese in 1941. And one of the remarkable things about the site is that these underground tunnels were designed to just massacre and slow down an army and slow down an invasion. But actually what happened was that most people got lost. Some people got locked in and couldn't get out. And it was a, instead of a battle that they thought would last for weeks, it was over in two hours with two casualties. Mm. So something about the dysfunctional design in a military sense, we actually thought was one of the few positive stories in mm. that region of the war, that a lot of young men for one night didn't massacre one another. Mm. And today, when you walk around it, there are little plastic BBs all in the tunnels and people illegally play airsoft there. Hmm. And if you know airsoft, the rules are pretty much CSGO. So we thought that was enough to justify, instead of just using Unity or Unreal, we say, no, let's use the game itself because there's so many resonances between the two. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's across the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, if you walk all the way over, there's an old military base uh, that had a turret to protect the bay. And it looks uncannily like a CSGO level. Like, it, mm-hmm. it just looks... Like, the way the architecture is set up in the series of rooms and the fact that all the military equipment has been removed, so it's like a, a kind of, like, disused or abandoned space, it, like, distinctly reminds me of level design from games like that. Speaking of uncanny, given all the protests in Hong Kong right now, Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious what the response was to a work that's literally kind of stealthily moving through tunnels in in Hong Kong, and also um, I, I don't know if this if that kind of resonance was at all like inspired by the Yellow Umbrella movement at the time that the work was made. But why did you choose that particular historical mm. moment? So. The, the thing that worked so well about this project was that there are three of us who um, come, at, come at making work quite differently. And the original idea was Andrew's idea, and he grew up in Hong Kong. He's, he's from there. Um, and he is really obsessed with kind of um, uh, local history and industrial ruins and stuff like that. So he does a lot of hiking through all sorts of um, strange uh, sites in Hong Kong, and he knew this one very well. Um, for the talk, I think the narrative that we found when research when researching this, it's an interesting case where historical events very rarely map onto any single reading. Like mm-hmm. what happened in Hong Kong in the Second World War was that at one point the British decided that it wasn't worth defending um, and that they kind of needed to allocate these resources elsewhere. So most of the military was pulled out of Hong Kong. And then... That decision, I think, sort of reversed and a smaller number of forces were sent back in. And one of the reasons that, um, you know, the site didn't do what it was supposed to do was that I think there wasn't enough troops in there to kind of um, operate it and to have enough people in each in each kind of pillbox or whatever. Um, so the kind of history there, it's, it's very peculiar in a way that um, it's a kind of combination of redundant technology this sort of on the one hand 
I guess, indifference by the British, but then them changing their mind. And, and so I think a work like this politically, it doesn't really serve uh, a kind of a, a, any clear agenda because the story is so strange. And it for me, when Andrew was telling me about this site and I started reading what historians had written about it, it was such... It was almost like an example built for Paul Virilio's bunker archaeology hmm. that you have this case where always these historical sites, particularly military sites, they look like one thing and we kind of project back on a past of, you know, these fierce battles there. But most of the time, there's something completely different. Um, and Virilio was mainly writing about military sites sort of strewn across Europe. Um, but it was interesting that sort of knowing knowing Bunker Archaeology, that book, and then reading about this site, I'm like, wow, you know, that really... I was surprised just how well it mapped on. So when I talked about the work here, I didn't get uh, any... Nobody was sort of particularly interested in drawing contemporary conclusions. Mm. Um, and most of the contemporary stuff that comes that it kind of comes back to is things like the relationship between games, realism and violence and this kind of... Mm. The interesting thing with Counter-Strike that it's... It looks like a violent game, but its rules are something closer to basketball or, um, right. you know, a very repetitive, um, uh, closely balanced sport. Um, so, and, and I think here that's probably a more, it, that was something that has been a heated discussion mm. um, lately. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, they're the sort of conversations that when people ask questions um, is what people focus on the most. I just wanted to add something. When the recent protests in Hong Kong just happened because I run a game column and I just thought, oh, I can commission someone who can play a game of riot simulation, but who has also been in the riot or protest in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And he did. I was so grateful to him, Billy, his name. Billy went to a protest that day and went back at 2 a.m. and finished writing because he thought the fresh thoughts were very, very inspiring for himself. And after I published that article, I got a lot of comments saying, why do you ruin our protest to use a game rhetorical metaphor? But mm-hmm. the fact is that the game, Riot, was designed by an Italian activist who was in the Italian five-star movement. And also a lot, he was stationed, no, he was traveling across Europe mm-hmm. to record other things. So he was using real stats or real backgrounds knowledge. He did his research. It's more about the strategy, like how... You can play either police or the protester, and there are different strategies or, or guns, weapons, and you can use. But they don't like it in the Hong Kong situation because using the game metaphor somehow made the students or young protesters more like a game addict. Mm. I think, so This that question I did deal with. Um, and the first time I, I came across that question was, um, you know, after a few months of working on this project, you know, you all feel out that, you know, I'm not from Hong Kong, although I've lived there for a few years. Um, Alexei is French. He was living in um, Shanghai at the time and then the other half in Paris. And Andrew is from there. And uh, so you're always concerned that, you know, you don't... When you're talking about somebody else's local history, um, that kind of that detachment can so easily become insensitivity. And I did a sort of work-in-progress presentation... Um, at a Hong Kong art space a few months in and a very senior Hong Kong artist um, made some really gave us some really interesting feedback and she said that um, you know there is there's a problem here that you're using 
shooting games to talk about real historical events. And we knew we had this problem. We just didn't know what, how to um, negotiate it. And one of her suggestions we used, and she said, oh, why don't you fill the space with ghosts, was sort of her direct wording. And what we ended up doing was that of all the changes we made to Counter-Strike, which were quite subtle but for us quite important, um, it was thinking about this difference that being a young man in a dark tunnel in 1941, scared for your life, has no parallel to sitting at a computer with a mouse in one hand and, you know, WASD on the other. And, and to kind of highlight that, that abstraction, we ended up turning the entire game level into sort of like a sound walk. Mm. So all the tunnels, we, I, we drew a big map of them and we had it so that depending on with, which path you take, you go on this journey of um, the music of the time that both groups of soldiers would have been listening mm. to. So we have like um, Japanese jazz from the 40s that, you know, at that time was suppressed because of its American influences. We had uh, American Japanese-American prisoners of war who were forced to become propagandists. Um, we had British radio edits. We had interviews with um, people who lived under the occupation. There are all sorts of things to try to focus on just how different sitting at a game, sitting at a computer running through this recreation is and how drastically removed it is um, from this time. Kind of like using hypermediacy to highlight the, the yeah. art, abstraction or artifice. Well, and there was a lot. Like the other things were, you know, there's no flashlight in CSGO. Um, there hasn't been since they swapped it with Weapon Inspect. And when you've got dark tunnels, you can't render a black screen. Right. So we ended up having to come up with this really complex, um, subtle lighting that made it look like it was dark but didn't want you to adjust the gamma on your screen or something mm. like that. So the whole thing, even though we made a very accurate coordinate reconstruction, we had GIS data that we kind of had to transfer as best we could into the Hammer Editor. Um, once you get to the game itself, it becomes pure theatre because so many things just um, will only work on screen if you make up all sorts of stuff like lighting and such. Right, which is very unlike when you film something, for example, and then you're using the natural constraints of the world. When you create something in a game engine, you are responsible for all aspects of what is rendered. Right, when well, filming also has its own artifice that it tries to, you know, you never see the boom mic in the, you know, mm -hmm. when you make a film, or you don't see the, the, the three key lighting setup, etc. When Stephanie and I played Autosave Readout, I think this was just in your office um, at some point uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, we were both logged into the same map and we were both exploring at the same time and we both had headphones on and we were both alone on dip probably spawned in different points within the tunnels or, or randomly at a, a series of points. And so we would walk and hear this kind of mid century jazz or, or hear these kinds of voices, but then also shoot like get shot and right. fall on the ground and, and you're dead. Like you'd log into a, uh, Deathmatch in CSGO and you just like pop into the game and are immediately shot. Mm. And that was like shocking, su surprising, both in the way that being killed in Counter-Strike is uh, because it's like sudden and sometimes it's a surprise, but also because of the mood of the piece is very sober. And so to, to me, and I don't know, Stephanie, if you felt that way, like it seemed to highlight like a contrast uh, between our expectations of a game like CSGO or even like video game realism and the types of hyper-mediated um, texts that proliferate in the game. 
And it seems critical, like, in two ways. Like, it seems to be both a critique of game realism or Counter-Strike, but also a critique of the ways in which we can understand history in some way. Like, it seems like that history, despite being so carefully rendered in that game, was still inaccessible or still, like, difficult to, to, to get at uh, for us. Mm. So that that was one of the other changes we made in the game that, setting this limitation that the medium of representation is not computer graphics, it's not um, a 3D game engine, the medium is Counter-Strike Global Offensive, mm-hmm. um, we thought, well, you know, there are, there are only certain things that we can change. And we hit upon this idea of making it a one versus one map because that simple change changes Counter-Strike completely because you get rid of that um, spectator mode when you've been killed and... The game, because we recreated an accurate site, it automatically becomes a bad CS map. Because, as I said before, a CS yeah. map is more like a basketball court. It's it's got a very complex, abstract symmetry. To oh create, yeah, it was hard to find one. To create another. balance, it was super hard to know who where is where. Yeah, and so ours because and also CS maps are geographically tiny. Mm-hmm. And even though our site is small, if you look at it on a satellite image or you know a topographical map, compared to say dust. Our map is about 12 times the size. Mm-hmm. And so we knew we'd have this situation where people would be by themselves for the most part of the game as if it was a site recreation. But by leaving the game mechanics in place and by having a one versus one map, you have a high likelihood that it feels like a choice for both, both people to turn it into Counter-Strike by, you know, left-clicking and shooting the gun. Right. Um, and usually by surprise when people meet one another, that, that game instinct kicks in and you game. Mm-hmm. Um, but we definitely left it up to the players to make that choice. Mm-hmm. That you can, if two people don't, they can simply walk around together. There's, and we, the other thing we set in the config file was we changed the time so that each round goes for 30 minutes mm-hmm. because the map is so large and disorienting. But that was our kind of response to gameplay representation and mechanics that we didn't change much but we made it 1v1 so that there was this mutual finitude that if one of you shoots it's over for both of you Mm -hmm. but you can play if you want to but you don't have to and and at the how museum there were two computers at the at the kind of like um we work style space that you could sit in two computers and then um two flat screen tvs so that Mm -hmm. people not playing could watch um, what both players were doing. What you're saying reminds me actually of the empathy debates that took yes. place a couple years ago mm-hmm. that was kickstarted by a presentation given by Chris Milk. And this was right at the time that the Oculus Rift and the, the HTC Vive was coming out. And um, one of the, the sort of, I guess it was marketing and advertising rhetoric or the fantasies of immersion, there was a lot of talk about how you could, you know, step into the rift and put on a VR headset and, for example, understand what it means to be a refugee. Or you could put on a VR headset and perhaps there's, um, you know, there's no, there's no image feed there, so that would... It could be a game where you can understand what it means to live as a person without vision. Which is very funny because it becomes this very expensive blindfold. Yeah, yeah. And I always actually think of, there's a disability theorist, um, he was passed away now, Tobin Sievers, who said that if you actually want to understand what it means to be a person who doesn't have vision, instead of these kind of blindfold style exercises, put on a pair of sunglasses, get a cane, go to a restaurant and, you know, 
wait for the waiter to talk down right, to yeah. you. Yeah, it's the social and model. Exactly, it's the social model versus the medical model mm. of disability. And so a lot of these conversations um, were being were being um, had around the kind of um, rhetoric of immersion and empathy and occupying of a you know particular subject position that was made possible through VR. And what I what I think about with your use of the uh, Source Engine and Counter Strike is that that is a janky piece of software mm -hmm. to use. So yeah. instead of this kind of uh, fantasy of um, perhaps accurately representing a historical reality mm -hmm. with a piece like the one that you're developing, it's actually, when I was playing it, what I, I was thinking was not, oh, it's like I'm right here in 1945. It's actually that discontinuity, yeah. Yeah. right? It's that inability to actually understand what was going on in that historical time period or that inability from my present to map onto the past. And so it kind of reminded me of a lot of those um, debates that were being had a couple years ago. Yeah. I mean, the, I've in my academic work, I've done quite a bit of work on the source engine and it's aesthetically one of my favorite moments in 3D graphics because I think it's still so evident the relationship between um, photography and geometry that you can, like I love it in like uh, Half-Life 2, you can always see these like textures mapped onto geometry and it's got this real like collage kind of feel to it. Um, and so aesthetically I, yeah, I have kind of a strong attachment to this, um, the way that it seems quite transparent in the sort of world that it gives you. Um, there are a few funny jokes there and also in why we use the source engine that I think early on, you know, there are all sorts of like dumb reasons you start something. And like, I remember Andrew's like, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if this became like a really popular map? Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and at that time I didn't really know much about like CSGO modding. Alexi knew kind of this community a lot better. He's a bit older than us and has been around, um, 3d graphics for a long, for a long time. And, you know, as we were looking at other mods, we we're like, okay, we have to remember that we are not modders. We are not good at this. Like, mm -hmm. because the people who are really do modding in the source engine at a high fidelity, uh, it's a whole different ball game. And mm -hmm. we really had to make it clear that we are not trying to um, occupy that space. We're trying to use this um, for a very different purpose. But one of the other jokes that came up was that it's funny how long Counter-Strike has lasted for. And in itself, when, like, a lot of the people who kind of were... Our justifications for getting the data from them was this idea of site preservation and digital reconstruction. And for me, I find those 3D walkthrough spaces disingenuous because I'm like, hey, it's just a game with the guns removed, you know? <laughs> like, that's, that's really the origins of this stuff. And any kid who sits down is like, you know, where's the game? This, this, <laughs> this is boring. Um, or my mother. Right. <laughs> who is a 13-year-old? Well, anybody, who, anybody who has that WASD feel, and if you click the left mouse and doesn't do anything, you're like, come on. But, um, but there's a funny archival quality to Counter-Strike itself. Yeah. That just by its user base, it survived. And we're like, well, you know, wouldn't it be funny if this lasted for, for a while because it happens to be Counter-Strike? So that was another reason of like a bit of a, like a joke in, in site preservation using Counter-Strike. Yeah, there's something very funny just shortly about the fact that something like Flash is 
not a great archival platform or even Unity, like uh, you have to wonder how long a Unity game or even Unity web stuff doesn't work anymore, right? So you have to wonder how soon it happens. Oh, it's already happened. And it makes me think that something like Counter-Strike or like a, um, the Nintendo Entertainment System operate as a far more powerful preservation platform for archiving information simply because they have a community culture around them that is interested in keeping them updated, whether that be in uh, NES case through emulation or in CS case through uh, this kind of like modding scene that's mm. taking care of these levels. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the way we did it was through the source SDK that is, it's all fan written. And mm -hmm. the, the sophistication of um, the documentation online for how to, you know, it is difficult to make assets for the source engine. It's you know, you can't use OBJ or FBX files. You go through like two or three other intermediary steps to bundle all the textures together and, and make these kind of um, uh, source engine-ready assets. But um, yeah, as you say, there is a user base who is constantly looking at the updates and making sure that this stuff works. So, mm -hmm. you know, it Definitely. would be funny if this... Like, we don't know how long this work will last. We might, you know, there might be one update and boom, the whole thing might... Mm -hmm. might crash out but it might be there for years so you know we'll find out so hey if you were to make a game using dota yep. <laughs> instead of source <laughs> you mean source 2 well it's pardon me source source 2 yeah well dota running it's on dota source 2, two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay if you were to make a game using dota 2 if i want just, just dot 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 yeah so <laughs> So, wait, wait, maybe I can rephrase this. Uh, if I was a rich man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dot, dot, dot. a dollar. Uh, Counter-Strike as a platform has affordances. And some of those affordances speak to, like, culture of violence or uh, maybe a question of realism or even a question of, like, the history of perspectival technologies or how we see uh, the world. What are the affordances of Dota as a platform? We'd love to know. <laughs> I mean, like, because you asked me this right when we started the project. Yeah. We're like, hey, maybe we can dig into Source 2. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we haven't had the chance. And I don't think... Yeah, I haven't even it's looked at it. It's a big ask. Yeah, so, so the what Peter and I found, and this was a little bit of a surprise to me, is that um, Dota 2 is an occasion to launch a new, um, kind of a new SDK, a new set of tools um, that are the tools used for Dota, yes, but they're also the tools used for uh, things like Valve's um, 3D games for mm. the Vive, so virtual reality stuff. Mm. It's the same set of tools now used to ship things like uh, Underlords and maybe one day Artifact to mobile, to Apple, Android, Google Play, etc. So, and it's the same set of tools actually to run the international, right? So when you see AR stuff at the international, the only reason that they can composite uh, you know, Earthshaker tapping his drum into the stadium live is because that's a source to, that's like an ex expansion or extension of the Dota 2 tool set using Vive motion capture to uh, produce this kind of like uh, live action video production. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that Dota was just like an excuse in some ways to expand to hardware, software, yeah, uh, mobile, all of these different things. It's wild. I, the only thing I can kind of connect to this is that um, in my when I was working 100% as an artist in painting and drawing, I still loved like just using the StarCraft 1 level editor. Like yeah. I just loved pushing and pulling that isometric space. And I remember when I got StarCraft 2, 
you're like, oh, this is a complete 3D engine. Mm -hmm. That is, so it's an RTS game, but using a 3D engine. So it has kind of like, in the camera, there will be these like, uh, uh, variations in scale that you don't get in pure isometric projection. And watching Dota, I was like, oh, it's the same thing. Like it's got, it's got a a camera with like, um, Mm. uh, scale. It's got a perspectival camera over a space that is kind of based on this idea of um, these isometric um, maps. It's super, super interesting. But you can see that, all right, so that is a fully 3D space and it can probably do a massive amount of stuff. Yeah, actually, at the International this year, they haven't been zooming into, like, the first-person or third-person mode, which renders the fog of war as white onto a horizon, uh, as if you're behind the characters, which occasionally they'll do at the start of the game. The other thing I remember as you're talking about that is I think there was a famous example in StarCraft II of folks who like remade a Mario Kart like behind the shoulder, <laughs> full on 3D thing, like within the StarCraft II engine. There's heaps of machinima made yeah. in StarCraft II engine. Is it an orthographic view? What? Uh, like Zoda. It's more no. isometric. isometric? Okay. It's, it's not quite because it's got a perspectival camera. But that, like that thing where you've got two sets of diagonals mm-hmm. when you look at the architecture, mm-hmm. that's closest to isometry, if you can confirm, because there's no, like Chinese painting, you'll have one flat side parallel to the picture plane mm-hmm. and one yeah, side yeah, going yeah. off. That's not isometry, they're both. I would so, just add that like the camera in Dota, I don't think is actually an isometric camera, no, because okay. if you view the trees at the top of the screen versus the trees at the bottom of the screen, there is like a perspectival pitch. That's that, what I was trying to say. It's almost like a yep. fisheye lens. You can see little. that in the center of the screen, mm-hmm. things are slightly larger. I love that the, um, the map is not, you can't rotate the camera 180 and see mm. the other side as if though uh, Dyer were in the bottom left and Radiant were the top right because all the trees would be pointing the wrong way and like, yeah. everything would be wrong. Yep. The Source 2 engine mm-hmm. is incredibly mm-hmm. robust right. and basically the infrastructure that Valve is using to build all these different things, both games and, and the things around the games at the same time. But when you look at the Dota game itself, it's kind of, even though it's very polished, it still seems very minimal and simple in terms of like the clicking and the movements, even though the, the mechanics are deep, you could spend a lifetime, right? As we're sort of learning mm-hmm. as we watch this. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that it emerged out of an older engine, the Warcraft 3 engine. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if emerged is the right word, but the, the design language of Dota comes from Warcraft 3. So technically, Source 2 only represents things in the Warcraft 3 engine. It's not like a direct port because that would be illegal. So there's like a there's like a specified law around That's like a technical answer. Everybody, yeah. wait, 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 hang on, sorry. Just, you're saying that like Source 2 is much more powerful mm-hmm. than Dota 2 needs it to be. Correct. That's yeah, awesome. and definitely. And they're approximating it or following a game yeah. that was built in a different engine which created the technical limitations for that particular game. Right, and those technical limitations have turned into game design mechanics, despite the fact that the Source 2 engine is super robust. I know we were talking about things like pulling and stacking, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know, you're better at explaining it than I am. Yeah, I mean, pulling and stacking in Dota is an old quirk of the Warcraft 3 engine where the way it worked is in order to make sure that there were always sort of like neutral enemies uh, to to kill mm. is on every minute it would check whether or not basically um, a camp was in its home or that that home was populated and if it was not then they would the engine would repopulate it 
the problem, or the, I guess, I guess the boon for Dota is that then if you are playing it at about 53 seconds, you could go attack and drag the creeps out of their home. The game would check and say, nobody's here and repopulate it. And then the creeps you had just been dragging away would walk back. What? So now you so have a stack. Yeah. And this was because, uh, Jass, just another scripting syntax, which mm -hmm. is what all the triggered events in the Warcraft 3 engine are driven by, had a lot of constraints for the designers of that game as well as the mappers of that game. And triggers uh, had a lot to do with like enemy vision. It would like check enemy vision for aggro, but it would also check enemy vision for things like respawn. And so Dota 2, despite not using Jass or the Warcraft 3 editor or any of that stuff, had to use that as a design constraint for its designerly language based on traditions and standards and metagames that were developed. But in no Warcraft. one would so ever it's actually skeuomorphic. Like, yes, I think that's right. And no one would ever actually design that in a game. And yeah, it's real is, silly. And yet this is one of like the most, if you're a support, which is mo the role that I mostly play when I do play Dota, I just, I spend so much time doing this thing that Again, like if it weren't for the constraint of this engine, it wouldn't exist. So the next bit is like, as technology and AI improves, we're going to look at the AI in Dota and say, this is like silly bad AI that is necessary because of the history of this game. Yeah, and necessary because it produced a certain kind of play. We've been on a tangent about like the technologies of Dota, and one thing that Peter brought up earlier uh, that I'm like, curious about is kind of the concept of... Uh, like landscape in these games because ostensibly when you're like making a map in whether that's like Starcraft or uh, Counter-Strike uh, there's an engagement with like space and you had mentioned uh, maybe not on this episode but previously about uh, your work um, kind of thinking about like painting and drawing and um, kind of the conventions of landscape in art history more generally mm -hmm. so does like landscape tie into the work you do in Counter-Strike and maybe beyond that, this is like the loaded question, like does the landscape of Dota, which is like a single map that's been kind of glacially updated over time, offer any mm. tools for thinking about um, like Dota as a medium for making art? Yeah. Okay. So to answer the first question, um, yeah, I definitely thought of um, our artwork, autosave readout, the Counter-Strike mod in terms of landscape and mm -hmm. that was because at that time I was uh, trying to write about landscape in computer games and to limit the terms of my discussion I focused on the Valve Source engine and so I was going through all sorts of different games and case studies to try to understand you know how does this medium function and maybe we can compare it to a medium like oil painting and say that okay you know it, it has this historical context um, these are the people that are making these things these are the representational limitations and these are the sort of hybrid meanings you get from them. So um, with Counter-Strike, the thing that I found so fascinating was it's, you know, the, the politics of its origins in modding and mm -hmm. that those controversies over, you know, the enormous amount of creativity that players put in, um, which is essentially a way for the, uh, the game itself to just increase its longevity, um, as well as a community kind of exchanging um, ideas and, um, and creative criticism. And that's, that's a tension much like the tensions in, um, you know, like uh, 18th century landscape painting when it's um, painters being commissioned by very wealthy people to paint portraits of the land that they essentially just um, 
bought from mm-hmm. the working poor. And so these, <laughs> these paintings always have a very strange context. And if I was to try to explain what sort of landscapes come out of the source engine, I would be looking a lot at some of the controversies over ownership and creativity, but also like what we showed in Autosave Readout was that there are so many limits of what you can and can't make. And so we found all sorts of geometric peculiarities that because we had a fixed reference point with very accurate um, uh, uh, GIS data, we found that certain shapes of buildings you just couldn't really make because um, the source engine as, um, you know, games like the Beginner's Guide show, it's really optimized to make games like Counter-Strike where the, the buildings are generally defined by right angles so that you can have really quick rendering. Mm-hmm. Um, they're designed to optimize AI. It's got um, The Source Engine has this great thing called the leaf system where it can calculate lines of sight based on nothing to do with the geometry, purely this like two-dimensional um, like pathing map that it creates. Mm-hmm. So it's really made for a very specific purpose. And so when you talk about what kind of realism it offers. It offers a realism based on what it was built for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second question in Dota, you know, I haven't done a long kind of analysis, which is how I, like these conclusions I say now, um, depressingly took me months, many right. months to come up with because, you know, you pass it through these frameworks to try to get to the core of what's going on. But with Dota at the moment, I have more questions like, and they're fantasy questions of law. Like right. the thing that I wanted to ask Stephanie was when, like, I know the other day you said, oh, um, I, I said I had some questions about landscape and Dota. The thing I wanted to know was actually a really dumb, specific question was, could someone explain to me the origin of the radiant and the diet? Like, where does that go back to? Yeah. Is that like a, a, a fantasy lit thing or? Wait, do you I'd know this? Know. Well, it, it's a lot like the other stuff where um, it had to be renamed when it went to to Valve sort of stewardship over Dota because mm-hmm. in, in Warcraft 3 Dota, it was not Radiant and Dire, but Sentinel and Scourge. Right. And I believe Scourge was very much a part of like the lore of the Warcraft universe. Yeah. And does that come from, you know, like Tolkien sort of stuff? Like that kind of wasteland versus like this um, romantic um, like garden space? Yeah, and... I mean, so one one aspect of that is actually in Warcraft 3 Dota for many years. Um, right now, you can pick heroes and play them on either side, but for a long time, it wasn't like that. There, right. those okay. actually um, the heroes were basically divided into two teams, and you picked among okay. them. Um, but I think another, I mean, a kind of major point is it does add that kind of like moralistic light dark dichotomy. But the actual, like, the map, it serves, like, a very important visual function of just letting you orient yourself. Like, where am I on this gigantic map right now? And they tweak it over time, but it's not a fixed... Mm -hmm. It's Sorry, it's not a procedurally generated map. No. It's... It is the same thing... Oh, yeah. ...always, right? And so there's a specific reason. It's a court, or, like, a field for Mm -hmm. playing a specific kind of game, the same way a baseball diamond is, or a basketball court. Yeah, I used to read like up update patch notes from Counter Strike maps, and it'll be hilarious stuff. Like to get the balance right, I remember on this um, the agency map, the update was that they lowered the table by like three virtual inches because it, there was an advantage of line of sight. And Nastrovi. <laughs> 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 Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, so like I, you know, they're, they're not um, they're not roguelike dungeons. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, mm-hmm. But yeah, what I was interested in is just this um, 
is it just a very basic binary trope that we go back through fantasy or, or am I missing some key stuff of like more prototypical than just token fantasy? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually you mentioned 18th century landscape painting and also the fact that that's the product of like things like the British enclosure mm-hmm. movement, right? Of like literally enclosing what was once public land into private property. Mm-hmm. And it's hard not to actually think about a product like Dota 2 as a kind of digital enclosure of the the sort of player energy and work and labor that emerged out of the initial you know, so community they- into this it literally like enclosed via intellectual property landscape. Yes. The, 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 map is a painting. the title of my dissertation is the enclosure of the valve source engine. If that if that joke, oh, I didn't know out. that. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I you know that was the the same reading that I kind of came to that. Um, High five. Virtual high five. Dota high five. Dota five. Yeah, right. Those linkages are also um, quite well established. I was reading, I think Sean Cubitt in his book Finite Media was talking about, um, he links a lot of the stuff of like the enclosure of the digital commons Mm -hmm. to the enclosure of um, the agricultural commons because it's not, they're not um, trivial links. You know, the, the enclosures acts in the United Kingdom in the 18th century really you know, the beginning of um, applying these very strict commodity-based systems to um, things that once weren't really owned by everybody and were shared. So, um, yeah, that word, I think, perfectly applies to the entire kind of ecosystem we have now of player-based content of, you know, is this is this a game that is um, a pastime of its players or is it a game that's a, a product of a company? And we know it's both, and this yeah. tension is... Um, is here. Um, I just wanted to ask, what is enclosure? Okay, so the enclosures acts um, were in the 1760s mainly, and basically um, during the agricultural revolution in the United Kingdom, um, uh, there were new new forms of agriculture being developed, such as like rotating crops, and I think it was like growing clover after a different crop, so that you could get massively. Um, uh, enlarged agricultural yields and to roll that out there was kind of a, a deal struck with um, landowners in the countryside where the government essentially said all these common lands that under um, the previous system uh, peasants could or people who worked uh, in rural areas could have their own market gardens could uh, have their own livestock on, on what we we'll call the common wastelands and the government essentially privatized it and said you can purchase this if you want, and then you can, in a very organised fashion, roll out these um, uh, far more structured forms of agricultural production. But what that did is that if you were someone who gained their kind of livelihood from farming the commons, you became an employee of a landowner. And that labour structure um, was a really sort of pivotal moment in early modernity, and it led to you know the enormous amount of wealth being created in the British countryside, uh, it changed the whole political structure of the UK. So even in the history of colonialism, it's it's all a very kind of key moment. But the way that people apply that history today is the enclosure of any commons. Um, so uh, you can think about when uh, a company tries to copyright something that in some way can be seen as something that wasn't ever owned by someone um, being, being owned by someone um, yeah, that's when we say enclosure, that's it's referring back to these laws that were called the Enclosures Acts. 
And it's also a term we use a lot in sort of the surveillance studies world to refer to actually the way that digital technologies, one affordance of them is to be able to kind of collect extraordinary amounts of data about the user's activity in digital spaces. Um, so I think he's Australian. Mark Andreevich has this whole concept of the digital enclosure, um, which is a really vital thing that a lot of things like social media, but also Steam and Source Engine do um, to actually like take this player data and retain it for further mm. analysis um, and yeah. optimization. And, it also, it and literally live off the fruit of the activity mm -hmm. of, of players. Um, now we're on the ethical territory. I was, I'm going to drag you a bit back from uh, Patrick's question. If, Peter, you're going to make a game art based on Dota, and I was thinking what would it looked like comparing to your game artwork based on CS. Because okay. one is so like realistic, the other is based on like the Chinese ones are based on the fantasies. Okay, so here I'd say a few things. What um, one thing about the realistic thing um, to me, there's a whole there's a whole lot of things going on there. Yes, there's um, fantasy elements in Dota, but I would also remind the listener that. Perspectival space, like a first-person game, mm. is no more realistic than an, a, a kind of uh, isometric or RTS-style game. Um, if you go through your kind of technical drawing education, all you find is that there's about, in architectural drawing systems, there's about 10 different ways to draw the same objects, mm. whether it's 1.2.3 point perspective or isometric drawing or whatever, and they all just have the same problem of compressing the world onto a flat space, like a mm -hmm. screen or piece of paper, and they preserve some data better than others, mm -hmm. but you're always missing the third dimension. And so to me, all of these representations are an abstraction as, as a representation. The second thing, using the fantasy world and imagining an artwork that doesn't exist yet, that's pretty tough. Um, <laughs> well, I actually think something like auto chess is an interesting example of what you make if you spend a lot of time in the source slash Dotaverse. Actually, there was one thing I was writing down during my listening to Brian Eno phase <laughs> of the tournament. Just rocking there back were, and forth. There were some the... things that I don't think they'd be great artworks. They were just things I wanted to see. Like, I'd love to just take a match and replace all the players and NPCs with just like platonic solids or something mm. and just yeah. see that could just be visually... It might be visually really interesting or really boring, but I kind of <laughs> want to see what it was. And the other thing we spoke about was I'd love to... Um, Stephanie has a map skin on her Dota client here, the Monkey King map skin. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And we were trying to work out well, how... Obviously, its physics properties must be identical um, for players to have different skins and play the same game. But representationally and you know what's being rendered on screen does look different. And I'd love to see a superimposition of those because I think that'll kind of say it be blew my mind that we were talking about the Monkey King, and then we chuck up the stream uh, through Stephanie's computer, and the map is different to every single yeah. match we've seen so far at the international because the skin applies to the games we watch through the client, which is wild that we're seeing a different game visually. Also, the only thing I've ever spent money on. <laughs> well worth it, I think. It was a beautiful map, but like that blew my mind. 
Yeah, so to clarify, uh, Dota has cosmetics of the heroes that uh, either replace or add specific pieces of clothing, typically. Sometimes pieces of bodies also, like extra limbs. But uh, usually, like, uh, you get a hat or shoulder pads or a full set of these items that you equip, um, including animations and things like that. And it's a big part of the... Um, of the kind of cosmetic market and economy around this game. But interestingly, and we see that in a lot of other games, but interestingly with Dota, because you don't have new levels coming out necessarily, um, you can get reskinnings of the actual game map. So uh, these include like underwater levels or desert versions or like ancient kind of Greek versions or medieval versions. And in this case, a kind of ancient Chinese literature version that kind of would... Uh, you know, reference some of the conversation maybe we were having earlier in terms of representing these ancient settings. Uh, but, but every tree is in the same place. Every yeah, yeah everything's in the same different. place and all the physics are identical. They look slightly different, which makes me think it would make total sense and be nostalgic for folks who are into this game to have like a low poly kind of quake map version of uh -huh. Dota to see like what all the hitboxes and stuff were. I'm actually surprised I haven't seen anything like that online. Do it. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> there, if one way to do it would be, I mean, the way it works in the source engine is usually when you select props like trees, I'm pretty sure it shows you the physics box. Yeah. So if you could just open the map and kind of select all or something, you might yeah, get a few of that. yeah. It seems like if there are people making these types of things using uh, some of the same SDKs, then you would be able to uh, pretty easily. I mean, we need to just download it. I think we need to like download it, pop it open, and see like what the um, what the attributes of all these objects are. Uh, I'm also wondering if you make something or anybody makes something using Source Engine or Dollar to to do some social realistic, realistic or historical realistic game would. You like someone like Peter would also be challenged with the same ethical problem or questions. Yeah. Like, is killing heroes fantasies okay? Comparing yeah, to yeah, great question. Yeah, moving is it, you know what was once a battleground into a playground. Yeah, yeah, that's so hu huge issues around that. Well, I think it also gets to the heart of trying to work out what these games are. You know, we had a discussion. I think at some point during this podcast of the words in Chinese for like electronic competition or e-sport. Yeah. And for me, when I was studying Counter-Strike, I think I said on, on one of our earlier recordings that reading um, books on sports geography really applied very well um, to what I was seeing digitally in Counter-Strike. And I think in Dota, the whole spectacle that we see definitely has appropriated so much from sports onto it. Because the game is so much, um, its its balanced kind of structure is so much like a sport. Um, and so when we talk about like killing, like I, I think about this a lot when they're they're farming the animals in their territory. <laughs> you know, you walk past this beautiful thing and just slash it in like half. Tomato, potato. No, <laughs> pink parrot friend. But what they are. I, I find, like, ontologically, I don't really know what anything is in that game yet, yeah. other than, obviously, to call them game pieces. Chesses. Yeah, no, I'm, chesses. Just, I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a tricky question. On, on the ethics, I guess, of we see play as something frivolous, mm. lighthearted, and then if you apply something uh, real, 
more serious, emotional, then you end up with the seeming paradox. Like this is a problem yeah. in so many different works from uh, Secret Hitler or The Grizzled yeah. in spaces like card games mm -hmm. to video games. Uh, yeah. Speaking of uh, violence and game, another thing is going on is like, I feel like there's a sanitization of games. Like, you, so there's violent game. I, I guess the other end is all these cute Japanese style healing yeah. games. And recently, recently, the designer of uh, the journey, what's his uh, name? Jinova Chan. Jinova Chan is back. What's the Chinese? Yeah, he's back in Shanghai. He's Chinese. He's back yeah. here, and he did a new game, a mobile game. And I have a friend who was going to try. Who was, who is a journalist and going to interview him? But he he's working. This game is connected to Night East, the mm -hmm. other like big competitor of Tencent. They're doing very heavy PR. Like it's all over the place. Genova Chen is he has a new name. It's Godfather of Zen game. Huh. So it's all the good things. Like he he's saying, I want my children or other people's children or not children adults to enjoy themselves, learn peace and love from my game. And my friend, the journalist, wanted to ask him. What's the problem of presenting some evilness in the game? Is it really good that everything in your game is to be nice? Like in his new game, you cannot do anything not nice. Nice is the, is the game fly, right? Yeah, nice the only freedom or choice you have to be. That's the end of the the other end spectrum of esports, like Dota, like esports, killing. This is the ask <laughs> the mm -hmm. heroes. Yeah. There's and like a creeps. weird implicit violence of you have no choice. You but to kill, or you <laughs> have no choice, but to be nice. These but are games, of, your, games of comfort, games of care. Yeah. Your game reminded me of like a weird inverse journey, <laughs> right? Like, oh, there's another player in the space and suddenly they might kill you. <laughs> what I was trying to kind of bring back was to make us not forget that um, sports are ritualized violence yes. from, from their origins that... Um, they're there to teach people the kind of teamwork that they would use to probably slaughter people later. That the origins of sports are in all sorts of odd places, um, and they're just as much as games, abstractions of all sorts of different things. So um, uh, you know, you only have to look at the the controversy over the kneeling in American football. Yeah, know? like mm -hmm. that. There is no. Um, depoliticized mm. space in sport and there is no um, abstraction without some sort of signification. Well, it strikes me that like Peter was saying, you can't really divorce politics from sports. And I think like Claudia Rankine's book Citizen is like an excellent uh, example of this um, where she engages like women's basketball and like um, the Zidane headbutt in soccer and all the different ways that like racialized microaggressions apply in contemporary sports, which the Colin Kaepernick situation is a great example of. We definitely see and feel that, right? He, we've seen it's super political here in yeah, this place. Yeah, totally. Right. And, and like, it's, <laughs> you it's tense, man. Whether it's on the Twitch chat and all the weird honk, but not weird, but like all the divorced from uh, its original intention Hong Kong memes. Uh, to kind of just be anti-China, or whether it's the stuff that we've noticed in the stands. This international, more so than other ones in the past yeah. at least, it's become very apparent the political space that we exist in. Yeah. And how that relates to the, the larger space, Shanghai, China, that we exist in. Uh, and the, the bubble that is tr trying to be created by Valve and, and uh, all these people investing in... Um, TI. 
TI and Dota as a world that seems apart from this world, there's so many cracks and seams that the real world leaks into that space. Uh, it's inescapable. Yeah, and um, over the past few days that the TI9 has been going on, it's really hard to avoid the news, even, even in China, um, about the intensification of the trade war that right. Trump has accelerated over the past, past few days. And so it's hard not to see that sort of somehow um, being articulated kind of on the periphery of, of TI9. But actually bringing it back to what you were saying, Patrick, about um, issues of race and racial microaggressions, that's a huge aspect of the gameplay of Dota more broadly. And in fact, this has been a really kind of important year for conversations around race that have been going on. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the least generous version of this is that this is sort of the year that Dota fans found out that racism existed. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Yeah. What? Is this the Seb thing? Um, I think the Seb thing is, I mean, it's, it's just part of all of it. Yeah. Um, can, can someone talk through that? Because there was a whole study around it, right? Yeah. Yeah, so um, Seb, what's, uh, so Seb used to be called fucking Well, this, mad this starts and, before Seb. Yeah, go ahead. This, this goes back to, I can't remember which player, one of these like the teenage North the American players <laughs> playing in a tournament, Dota tournament in Sweden, and he used like an anti-Chinese slur in the all chat that of course all the players and then anybody watching could see. Yeah, and, and then... Uh, Several, I think just a few days later, um, a Filipino player used the same slur in a public game. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the Chinese fans who were already smarting about um, what had happened in Sweden, now there is this other incident. And so they lobbied basically the, the local government in Chongqing and said, hey, like this player is a racist. You should not let him compete here. And so the local government basically said, hey, yeah, you can't come here. Like, sorry that you're on a team who already qualified for this tournament, um, but you're just going to have to swap somebody out. And it became this major sort of argument over, like, the, the sovereignty over these tournaments. Mm -hmm. Should, like, the teams be able to determine this? Should the local government, should the tournament operator, Valve, who actually has the authority in this case to, to adjudicate over when someone has done something bad? And, and... That, um, I mean, it, it spoke to, like, the tensions that are sort of in this Dota system yeah. um, and made people very aware that, in fact, no, this is not, like, a, a sort of a post-racial context. In fact, this is a key site where these ideas are being negotiated and fought over. Mm -hmm. And, but then the subs thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also. yeah. So this is a French player, Seb, who is, uh, we actually watched, he's part of Team OG. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're doing really well right now. So, yeah. So... Uh, a bit of the background behind um, Seb is, first of all, I think it's important that to note that the winners of T, the last TI, TI-8, uh, in Vancouver were OG, and mm. they were up against the Chinese team, LGD, uh, which is also uh, doing well in this tournament. And uh, there's a kind of classic moment that's hence, since become a meme and also like the nostalgic point of reference for thinking about the grand finals of that tournament. And that's when Seb on Axe shows up late to a team fight, yet kind of almost like the Tidehunter from TI2 turns the tide and switches it from his team all dying to actually slaying, I think, four people on the other team. Maybe all of them? Was it a team wipe? I can't remember exactly, but... Uh, Od Pixel at the time says, "Who's a caster? Who's a caster?" 
ceases doing color commentary and nerd chills up and down my body as I say it. He just says, Sad! As the action happens on the stage, almost like in soccer. And that, um, that audio clip became a, a kind of uh, unlockable audio meme in Dota if you use the battle pass to unlock it. And the so more points... it was points, monetized, right? It was monetized, yeah, and they've been doing this lately. Who the, gets the money? The TI2 moment of patients from Zoe waiting in the, the uh, wing, um, oh, oh, there's the, the sleep, etc. from TI2 is also monetized in a similar way where you can unlock them in the battle pass and then add them to your chat wheel and then use them. But the sub one is particularly interesting out of all the audio clips because the length of your sub... <laughs> increases as you spend more money in this game. It does sound a little dirty. I mean, it's pretty dirty, but like uh, it starts with, you know, Seb into these longer and longer versions of itself, both in text with additional ease, but also a looping of OD Pixel's voice in the middle seamlessly to make this go on and on and on. So this is already kind of the background of the conflict between the winning team from last year and the Chinese team Mm. in terms of how that... uh, meme is being deployed to make matters worse um (laughs) video and screenshots of seb in a match i think a public match with russian players um were captured uh and these were not pro players these were kind of like a public match players were captured of him using um kind of like anti-russian uh racist language against them when um they were losing the game. And this is right before... Epicenter Major, which was in Moscow this year. And so uh, Russian teams, similarly, I think, to uh, some of the Chinese teams in the earlier incident, kind of um, petitioned Valve and uh, the organizers of Epicenter to... Address Or or actually, I think they actually petitioned other Russian teams to boycott competing at this tournament with this person. Right, if Seb shows up, we're out. Yeah. But... Then somebody went and actually said, well, hang on, where is this racism coming from? How, like, aren't other people racist as well? And so somebody took all the public match data. Yeah, they downloaded, like, I don't know, 100,000 matches or something and did, like, a digital humanity-style big wow. data project where they scraped all the text of every public match of every pro of relevance the from the last year. And the result is that... Aside from those who do not publish their public match information, the majority, the vast majority of Dota 2 pros use racist speech in their play. Um, All the time. All the time, yeah, and to various degrees. Um, but it's like not just any racist speech. Yeah, right? I mean, the one that popped oh, out okay. as like a, the most common one, I think, across the board was actually uh, racist, anti-Chinese uh, racism. Really? That's also ableist. In yeah. Nature, yeah. Can, can I know this one though? Yeah, I mean, we won't repeat it on the podcast, but the the word is mongoloid, um, and so it mongoloid. is mongoloid is the like term. Like the Mongol is what it means. Mm-hmm. Oh, I am Mongolian mm-hmm. and Chinese. And the reason that this <laughs> word is deployed, I think, uh, well, we don't have to get into the etymology of it, but it's both a word to refer to folks with like limited cognitive abilities as oh. well as Chinese folks. So it's like a it's like a two part So Chinese folks are not cognitively Well it kind of <laughs> conflates the two, right? Okay. In the way that like hate speech often conflates like ableism and racism. Okay. So it goes back to old like 
phrenology and like race science stuff in the like 19th mm-hmm. century, I think. Yeah, it, it's historically been specifically used to refer to people with Down syndrome. So, whereas, you know, Seb was the, the person who was singled out and um, for the speech that he was using, it really wasn't just him. This was a pervasive problem within the sort of larger, um, the larger community of Dota. And still is. I'm, and still is. I mean, on the sports thing, like this, from Australia, even though I'm not a big sports fan, you'd have to live under a rock to miss this in Australian culture that... Um, and I, I think it, it actually functions reasonably well that um, every once in a while, you know, sports people are held to a higher standard than the rest of society operates. Um, and, you know, cases become examples around which the country either embarrasses itself for um, its inability to confront racism or sometimes, you know, says, look, you know, you're a professional athlete, you're at the top of the game, and part of your job is to set an example. And that now is actually in people's contracts. And I think it's about every six months we have like a headline grabbing one. It was just like uh, <laughs> three months ago that there was a, a very strong homophobia incident with an Australian football player. And Israel Folau. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it's I think the reason that, you know, it's not like this is the only person engaging in this mm-hmm. discourse in sports, but it's that they're in the public eye. And they become their role models, all sorts of things. And so I think... I, I will say also that it, it shows how much the Australian media loves shitting on people of colour. Oh, like, yeah, there's so many things going on there. Yeah. Um, it's, whether but, it's Adam Goods or like any of this kind of controversies of the past. Yeah, well, it, it, they become a, a magnet for all sorts of um, uh, axes to grind. But I, I sort of think that maybe esports is having its moment where, um, unfortunately, these very young players will realize yeah. that um, the position they're in, they are held to a different standard than people who may, may not be that far away from them. Would that, would that be fair for you guys' knowledge of, that, of the field? Yeah, and um, I want to get to what um, Young Jing is saying, but the, there was a, an article that seemed, it got passed around a lot of esports Twitter a while ago after a... Um, sort of a racist incident happened in Overwatch League, and the article was called something like, when you're in the game, you're only in the game. And it was this very clear attempt to totally divorce what was happening mm-hmm. when you were you know, playing esports um, from whatever your social identity outside of it was. And of course, it's, this was a version of the old like 90s internet thing that we're going to go on the internet, we're going to try out all these identities... And that means we're going to, like, leave all the old, like, categories of race and sex and ability behind. And, of course, nothing of the sort happened. (laughs) Um, But I see a lot of that, um, and I think the way that um, Dota players and esports players more generally try to really just um, kind of, you know, ideologically just reduce everything to the game so that you don't have to talk about these other things. And clearly that, that fantasy is starting to break. I was wondering if in the North American scenario it might be the same as China because esports players are so young. In China, they generally don't have education, enough time or means to education, where they, they need to practice all the time, kind of like how you treat musicians, like child music stars in China. Mm-hmm. Maybe that plays a part in this too if they don't have access to education. And I think even beyond access to education, I think there are shifting ideas about like celebrity and our access mm. to people. 
Um, certainly, like, esports celebrity is very much, like, tied in with ideas of the internet celebrity, which, mm. unlike traditional celebrities who are meant to be inaccessible, we demand so much of people who are in these influencing positions that it just makes structurally, when you say something bad, because all of us are, you know, hailed by a problematic culture, are going to say bad things. Yeah. Um, that, But when you're in, in this sort of uh, public eye, it just makes it way more possible for that to just you know be witnessed yeah. by many people so this got heavy <laughs> this okay. conversation here yeah we can edit it or not <laughs> just this is how we end yeah. or not that's <laughs> the end i thought we're, we're going to talk about art yeah <laughs> well like art, talking art, about art is political this is art of talking so. <laughs>where Chinese favorite PSG LGD face off against their rebels, OG, in the upper brackets. And we interview T.L. Taylor, professor of comparative media studies at MIT, co-founder of NEK, and author of books like Watch Me Play and Raising the Stakes, Esports and the Professionalization of Computer Gaming.